everybody, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. And right now I'm tuning in from a stormy, rainy, cloudy afternoon in Miami, Florida, and it's giving all the cancer feels. So I'm excited to sort of embrace all of that emotive realm with someone who I deeply admire, respect, have so much love for, and someone whose work is incredibly important um, to the abolitionist movement and movement for black liberation. Um, thank you for coming through, Clarissa. Hello, how you doing today? I'm good. Um, so Clarissa, I feel like you're, again, one of those people that's a little, like it's hard to just like summarize everything you do in just a few words, but yeah. you know, I do think you're such an incredible writer, movement journalist, political worker, organizer abolitionist thinker but i'm also curious aside from all of like those labels what are some things that's anchoring you and bringing you you know drive these days mm. i feel like after 2020 i've taken being a friend really seriously mm. um like that has been like the most critical thing for me um a friend to myself and also a friend to other people like i really have been taking stock of my relationships um setting some hard boundaries, being in therapy. Um, so those are things that are really important to me right now. Um, being a friend, being a partner, um, mm. being um, like a parent to myself is really like a full-time job actually. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really been the thing that I'm most proud of uh, coming into 2021 is having like a lot of clarity about who I wanna be to myself. Feels really critical. And it also connects to the work that I do because like, um, I think I can be a better organizer and journalist when I am clearest on like what I need. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. You know, the last, com last conversation I had on the podcast was with my friend Mimi and they were talking mm -hmm. a lot about this like, idea of like reparenting ourselves and like what it means to have to be parenting ourselves in the first place um, and what that could look like. So I really resonate with that. Yeah. Um, I think, Clarissa, one of the things that is like so special about you that I don't think we get from a lot of journalists um, is that you, you know, you're not just a writer that's sort of on an observer standpoint and sort of mm -hmm. like a third party that's just interviewing folks and kind of just like making narratives out of that. But you're actually someone that like historically has been really deeply rooted in movement work. And, you know, you've been as we say, like on the ground for a long time. I'm curious yeah. to hear just like as a journalist and, and you know, especially most recently, I've, I've really noticed like more and more high profile pieces coming from you, which is really exciting. But yeah, kind of just like the way in which your political work has sort of informed your journalism. Yeah, so um, I really shape, I feel like I found a lot of direction in who I wanna be as a journalist from Tony K. Bambara um, and her framing around what does it mean to be a cultural worker? Because um, for me, it really means like, am I doing work that pushes us towards liberation? Um, can I like look at my pieces? Can I look at my movement work and see how it's pushing us closer that way? Um, and that has always felt like an anchor, but I just didn't have a name for it. So Tony, my favorite Pisces is always my go-to for that. Um, and I think, you know, being a former student organizer, an organizer in Charlotte um, and in Atlanta, it's 
you know, I'm, I'm writing about people's lives and their experiences and the work that they do, but also like, I think often by the fact of like, I really only try to write things that I care about, um, mm -hmm. which is a privilege because that's not something all journalists can do, but um, it took a lot of boundary setting, a lot of saying no to editors to be like, I'm not writing a fluff piece. Like somebody sent me an email, like last a PR email being like, do you want to interview Nancy Pelosi? And I was like, did you send this to the right person, babe? Like, I mean, listen, <laughs> if we're trying to, if we're trying to make that happen, maybe you know, maybe you know, there's some shit that can pop from that. But yeah, I was like, it's 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 gonna be an action. Like, I don't know if it's gonna be an interview. Um, who in Nancy Pelosi's team flagged that? I mean, I don't know who I runs like, those PRs. Yeah, I was like, I don't think you've read the work, and that that's okay. Maybe this is for somebody else. Um, but yeah, I really have been. Uh, trying to make myself proud about the things that I put out. Um, and yeah, I think I, I also just think about who I was in high school and if I'm doing pieces that make that person proud. Like, am mm. I doing pieces that like high school me would be like, oh, I want to know who like the queer artists creating all this merch is or like, I want to know like what artists are coming out of my city that are not being talked about. Like those are things that kind of anger me. Um, in those realms of like the political, the editorial, the literature pieces. Yes. Ooh, yeah. I think making our younger selves proud, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a lifelong journey, but one that feels, I think, more and more pressing. I know like for myself and folks I'm in relationship with. Mm -hmm. um, and I really hear you on this piece of like trying to be embodied in principle and value and like mm -hmm. politic and ideology, even through the work that, you know, might be quote unquote, I don't know if mainstream is the appropriate term, but that might be, you know, filtered through an editorial team, might be sort of crafted for like mass consumption, right? If someone's reading your work on a huge magazine, on Rolling Stone, on NPR, like, you know, there is that sort of idea that it is it is for a lot of people. And I always, I, I'm always curious around how folks navigate this piece and like this tension, because I think it's, you know, you're a person with a pretty pretty large platform um, not just like on the journalistic end, but, you know, like on social media, like your Twitter, mm -hmm. where there's just high visibility on, you know, what you say, what you don't say, when you choose mm -hmm. to abstain from commentary, you know, who you might talk to, who you might not. And I'm curious, kind of like in your own growing of a leader and like developing as an artist, like how has boundaries played out? What are some lessons that you've sort of mm -hmm. taken from that process and like that positionality? Yeah. Um I will say I'm really excited for like the memoirs that are going to come out from people in the next like five to 10 years. Cause I hope everybody has a chapter about 2020. Um, I don't think any, I don't think anybody came out of 2020 being like, I'm the same person. Some no. people did, but I wasn't one of those people. Um, but I think boundaries wise, especially with the platform stuff, it has really, like I was saying about being a good friend, like it really made me question like what types of relationships I was in um, and how much I was investing in people and how much people were expecting of me that I didn't really ask for. Um, and I like, um, I'm not like actively like in the book club, but I follow the books that y'all read, um, but like, um, like how to do nothing, like, books that really critique the internet culture were so important to me last year mm. because it really helped me understand better like parasocial relationships 
in how, not that I'm a cog in the machine, but that like at the end of the day, the algorithm is the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a lot of relationships that felt transactionary or like we're mutuals because we hate somebody else. Right. And I was like, but do we like each other? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think we like each other. Um, and so the, the boundary aspect with the platform has really been critical for me to just get out of it, for me to just realize I'm not actually really present in my life um, and in my relationships. And I think the internet was a really good distraction for that, for me to not be very present in my relationships. Um, but since 2020, I've like, it's been mandatory for me to do that. Um, and really critical, I think also as a journalist, because it made me realize I actually don't have to chase stories. I don't have to chase the notoriety um, mm. because my work speaks for itself. Um, and I think the internet kind of makes you think everything is an emergency and it's really not at all. Right. No, I, I, that piece feels so important. Like the pace mm. at which social media, and it's not just social mm-hmm. media, right? it's like the 24 hour news cycle, like yeah. who has the hottest take on Twitter, who, yeah. you know, who's like the, you know, the best thinker of them all, it creates such a culture of anxiety and like mm-hmm. wanting to be in constant production mode. And like, we know the systems that, that have us in this. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it is really interesting to hear you say like, yes, I have this large platform and I'm actually moving with deep intentionality within that realm um, and like drawing really hard boundaries to sort of like protect my integrity um, cause yeah. sometimes it feels really difficult, you know, like sometimes yeah. it's like you do want to have the hottest take. And yeah. I think also, you know, something I'm curious about, like for you and your work, like you're someone that's coming out of the South who's been up to like abolitionist work for a minute. Mm-hmm. And 2020 was a time where for so many of us, it was the first time we were seeing like our deeply held beliefs just hit on the mainstream, right? And the media was so crucial to that, right? And all forms of media, right? Like establishment media as well, just like social media and like, Mm. you know, all types of forms of that. But it was the first time where like millions of people were engaging with the idea of abolition, right? And I think Mm -hmm. for a lot of us, I feel like storytellers, popular educators, writers, it was like, oh shit, like we have a responsibility to try to make meaning of this moment in a way that feels aligned with what we know to be true um, and that offers continuously more context than, you know, a New York Times article is going to give you um, or whatever, or, you know, a tweet might give you in some ways. But yeah, how was that? How was that for you? Kind of just seeing the media blow this up all summer and beyond when it's like, oh, we've been up to this shit. Yeah. I mean, um, I also wanted to add a little bit to the last part. I, I used to be like out there with the hot takes. I used to be out there like giving you the spiciness, cussing out a whoever. So I'm not saying this is some like magical like thinker. I'm saying this because I was in fact the annoying, bitter <laughs> person on Twitter screaming at every single thing. Um, and then I realized I wasn't very happy. Um, <laughs> so I'm saying this through, through personal experience, um, not some like lesson learned, um, but I think last year, especially around abolition, was important and overwhelming because I hit, I hit that really critical intervention where I was out on the streets with my roommates, watching people burn down shit, and then also getting requests to like write about abolition. Yeah, 
And so I was like body-wise exhausted, tired. Um, uh, this was like important context for this conversation, but um, I also live in the neighborhood where uh, Ray Sharbrooks was killed. Um, so my neighborhood was on lockdown as well. Uh, so we couldn't really like leave or go anywhere for like those two weeks of the protest. Um, so it was weird. It was it was definitely like the perfect uh, microcosm of like capitalism in the sense of there was a demand on my body to show up. And there was also a demand to explain the suffering to the internet. And I only did a few pieces during the summer and they were all pieces that were like really editorial, not super strict because I just didn't have the brain capacity to like report, but they were all, I feel more rooted in my integrity of just talking about what I was going through and what my community was going through. Um, but yeah, it was, it was also interesting because the media went into what it always does when crisis uh, happens, which is explain things that people already know and then go to the wrong people to do that explaining. Right. So I didn't see very many organizers writing on abolition. I didn't see very many organizers being asked to write on these things. It was like a random white lady at a publication or um, writers who didn't have the proper context on the movement or who just like don't care to do the proper reporting on the movement. Um, and so for me, I felt this pull to where I wanted more organizers to be writing, but I also knew they were on the streets. I knew that they were doing mutual aid work um, and that they were tapped out. So I left the protest wrapping up the year, really being like, we actually need to be building more capacity for organizers to be writing um, and archiving their work because I can tell that journalists and media are not gonna do that work to like remember the names keep the record and keep the score of like who is actually pushing this world to, like towards freedom. Yeah. Oof, I feel that I feel that really deep in in like a lot of levels. Like I think somatically hearing you say, I mean, I remember last time we saw each other was in Atlanta in the midst of all of this. And yeah. on one end, it's like externally there's like a to your point, there's a lot of demands on people with our yeah. ideology just being like, yo, give us the hot take, like what's happening, you know, everyone's kind of, you know, the DM requests are out of control, the Twitter, like emails pop in. And at the same time, like there's actually so much disembodiment happening in like the literal sense and like the symbolic sense of, you know, what it means to be in a full blown crisis. And I think specifically, you know, us seeing our, each other in Atlanta, the morning after killing happened is like, yeah, it's like how do all of these worlds collide at once and like we're supposed to like stay in center and like make strategic decisions career-wise yeah. as young people that it just feels really after. hard. Oh my god. Yeah, literally the morning after and we were just like what the fuck and you know, every conversation we had that day was like really really responding to yeah. the conditions. And then I also think about this piece that you said, like what it means to build capacity for organizers and folks on the ground that are rooted in this work, but actually don't have skills to archive and document. Like that's actually, I think even organizationally, I can say folks I'm in a relationship with in organizations, like we are probably the worst at documenting <laughs> our process and our learnings and like right. 
you know, I mean, you know this, like in one year organizing cycle, it's like three years, right? Like so much happens, right? Like from campaigns, folks that you bring in, people, leadership development, transitions, all of the things, political education, action, all of this, like there's actually so much density that happens in like the organizing context. But in because of that, it it also feels really hard to like slow down and actually capture what's happening. So there's so much there's so much that's just being lost, like so much wisdom, so much insight that's just being lost. And I think especially for younger organizers, that feels like a big disservice. Um, you know, I think I'm trying to challenge myself also like, yeah, how can I journal more about the process? Like yeah. where I was five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, how I responded to the pandemic and my own work and where I'm at now, like future visions. But I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I'm curious if you've, if you're seeing any exciting examples or like, you know, invitations or seeds being planted around that for for political workers, movement workers. Yeah, um, I actually help run um, a collective called Just Media. So we mm-hmm. started this like really small fellowship uh, like October of last year, where we just get young folks and literally just train them on like freelance writing, op-ed writing, just going through the basics with folks. Um, And I've been really proud of that just because it's more of a leadership thing that I'm always normally pretty nervous about, but the response from folks has been really good. Um, So Just Media. um, And yeah, there's just a lot of Southern publications like Scalawag um, that have been really cool. Um, There's a new group called Zenith Cooperative, which is being run by two freelancers um, that, yeah, are just starting a fellowship. Like you don't need to be a freelancer. You don't need to be 18 to 25. You can literally be whatever age, whatever space um, and giving folks those skills. I would love to do some stuff like more hyper-focused on organizers because Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think those, the things that I'm interested in are like, what was it like on the day that this happened? What were you doing? What were you feeling? Where were you with your people? Um, And how did you build this thing to like Mm -hmm. get people's needs met? Um, Even like people's like mutual aid groups, I'm always like, there needs to be some like audio recording storytelling thing because um, yeah, I want people to have that, those stories for later. Um, And also I just don't have faith that media as an industry is going to ask people what those moments were yeah they're not <laughs> but we've seen <laughs> as we've seen i'm like y'all have made it very clear what y'all are up to yeah. um yeah i mean just hearing you kind of like verbalize all of that i'm just like yeah like that you know i don't think i i don't think i talk about it enough but i'm like that was kind of like some of the impetus of the podcast i'm like yeah mm-hmm. interviews are dope like cool but i'm like it's like oral archival of like Again, people's process, because I think that what I realized what has happened time and time again is like in conversations, people are like, oh, I've never talked about this or like I haven't mm-hmm. had the space to kind of like make sense of X project or like what happened in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you kind of like laying that out. Like we actually need we actually need organizers and folks on the ground to also identify storytellers and 
yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of exciting things, I think, especially happening in the South as usual. <laughs> um, but I would love to hear kind of, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you have like pretty big profile pieces. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that you're on demand right now mm-hmm. and that you're making like discerned decisions, right? Around like, nah, I ain't trying to work with y'all. I ain't trying to write mm-hmm. on that. I ain't trying to do this. But yeah, kind of like what's your sort of assessment of like, you know, where one year post uprising, um, essentially like leaving leaving the nexus of the pandemic in some ways, at least here in the United States. Yeah. Like what is your sort of assessment of, yeah, what media is up to, kind of some of the contradictions, some of the really big challenges or things that we should be worried about as media kind of just does what it does? Yeah, I think a year out of the pandemic, there was this really interesting like newsletter boom probably happening in the middle of everything um probably like may april of last year everybody was putting out a newsletter Mm um i for some reason thought i was going to do that i thought i was and i'm like i don't have capacity to do shit yeah like it's too much um but i think industry-wise we are actually seeing huge media conglomerates start to build. Um, I'm thinking like right now, like Buzzfeed um, just bought Complex, um, which is a huge music publication, um, Mm -hmm. which will have huge implications because Buzzfeed is known for for furloughing staff, for getting rid of staff um, very quickly. So yeah, and we're, we're, we're seeing publications just join bigger companies to where um, very similar to how we see like tech companies, you can't distinguish between Google, Netflix, Mac, all these places, right? They just all look the same because they're all owned by the same three companies. Um, so that's concerning because a lot of staff people are losing jobs. Um, a lot of projects that were focused on like marginalized communities are getting lost because of that. Um, and we're seeing a a want for like un paid labor. Um, BuzzFeed just put out this content thing where it's basically like, if you get this amount of clicks, we'll pay you this amount of money. But it's basically like being an intern, but you don't get paid staff wages. Um, It's a content farm, basically. Um, And we're seeing a push to that because publications have realized video isn't working, newsletters are falling apart, so they need to find another way to get clicks and get ad dollars. and a lot of editorial people are actually moving to tech companies, right? Like the um, editor-in-chief of Allure magazine just went to Netflix, which is huge because uh, that all that editorial knowledge and infrastructure is going to a tech company. Um, and we're seeing a lot of paper publications fall apart. Um, and I think those challenges for me as a freelancer look like, I was actually like, talking to myself maybe like a few weeks ago about like I've got some like freelance publication goals and then I'm actually dipping out of the game because it's not it's not looking great um one because like people just want certain content that I can tell isn't Mm -hmm. as interesting and also um I'm not like a young bull anymore which is weird like there are some folks that are fresh that want bylines that are willing to Tibbity type fast. I'm not one of those anymore. Um, 
and yeah, I just want to hit those goals and then um, move on to the next phase of what I want my writing career to look like. If that's a book, if that's a press, if that's whatever, um, I just want to build something more sustainable and freelancing is just not that sustainable. Um, I also just like don't have the earth placement to do paperwork. Like it's a lot of W9s. It's a lot of placements. Like, no, literally like my partner will be like, just turn in your invoice. And I'm just like, Ooh, <laughs> I'm gonna do it, but like, when is the question? Um, so yeah, I just want to do something more sustainable and something that I can like sink my teeth into. It's like the freelance game is just so fast paced yeah. that um, you really gotta be a top notch reporter to get a cover story or an investigative piece. Um, and I want to do that like really long term work, um, and you can't really do that with freelance currently um, yeah I mean freelance yeah. is like so extractive and I think of you know it makes me just think of like in so many ways it's like the the full embodiment of like gig economy and like Absolutely. precarity you know like Absolutely. it's what's wild about it is like I think on one end especially on social media like when you see folks you know for example I'll, I'll use you as an example you know it's like you know, have a piece at the roll in the Rolling Stones. Like, of course, that's great, and we want definitely storytellers like you to be the ones, you know, actually writing shit. But then it's like, you know, it's a trap in many ways, and you know this well. It's like, all right, these people with huge names, huge publications. It's like they don't actually pay well. The turnout, like, you got to move hella quick through these mm -hmm. pieces, like really quick. And, you know, it's like freelance writers generally don't have like any benefits, any type of security mm -hmm. from these publications that are making, you know, racking up millions and millions and billions of dollars. And yeah, I mean, it's like, it's just really dark. Like, it's like, there's like the content aspect of it. that It's like, you know, there isn't like an ideological commitment, except like status quo for the most part. Yeah. Um, and like maybe like liberal identity politics at best mm -hmm. for most of these publications. But then there's actually like the work culture and like the way in which y'all as writers and workers are being exploited by the same. Yeah. It's funny that um, folks will, you know, be like, oh my gosh, like that's such a cool bylaw. I'm so proud of you. Um, and then I'll be like, this is how much I got paid for it. And they're like, huh? I'm like, yeah, the like, mm -hmm. and also like the thing that is really frustrating is like, you still have to like barter for your rate. Like I still have to be like, if somebody offers me a rate for a piece, I still have to go back and forth with them about, I should be paid more because I've written for this place. Or I'm like for Rolling Stone, I'm okay with getting a lower rate for this because I know I can go somewhere else and barter for a higher rate, which is like, I'm not trying to barter my living. <laughs> with someone yeah. via email. Um, yeah. I should be paid like an appropriate way for the amount of work that I put into it. But um, that is still the world we live in. And I really commend people that freelance full time because mm -hmm. you really have to be dedicated to getting your checks on time, doing your paperwork, getting your pieces done. Um, and I have some friends that have done that and done well, but also like it is just not sustainable unless you're like, a white woman that wants to report on pop culture. They yeah. succeed. But wow. if you have a politic, if you have boundaries, it's harder to do that. It's harder mm -hmm. to stick to that and do this full time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like the emotional and intellectual labor that goes into it is also just ridiculous. Like, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I try to budget on my shit, and it's like, y'all just paying me so late, you know? Like, I was counting on this three weeks ago. Um, Yeah, and it's like, we're just workers. Yeah, I'm just like, still nothing. All of the extra emails, I think even, like, having to hop on calls with people beforehand, like, all of that just, like, unrecognized shit that just, again, it's, like, more and more work. Yeah, I think I think there I think there's like a really interesting task to like kind of break the romance of freelance because I think it's like we're being bombarded by so much um, ideology around like being your own boss, working mm-hmm. on your own time, and having yes. your schedule and like girl know. boss, gatekeep, gaslight. Yeah. That is what we. <laughs> that is what we're being fed. Exactly. I'm like, I want none of that shit. I want healthcare and a 401k and PTO. To rest. The dentist. That. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. But I am, you know, I you spoke a little bit on it, and I don't want you to feel pressured to like have any sophisticated answer. But I would love to hear a little bit more about like what are the sort of dreams that you have a little bit more long term, right? Like, if you're able to like finesse and get out of this like freelance sort of like hamster wheel sooner rather than later kind of like what are you trying to manifest what are you envisioning yeah it's wild because like again like the speed of the internet and the internet as really just a mechanism of neoliberal capitalism um in my head i should already have a book i don't have a book yet right but that is hopefully the next step um, is getting a literary agent, mm-hmm. writing a book um, and doing that. And I think also really outside of that, I really just want to build some sort of community journalism hub or network that prioritizes the stories of like people actually experiencing state violence and what they need um, and how they're experiencing the world. Um, and I'm moving towards that slowly. Um, the book I want to write is focused on HBCUs and like that experience. So yeah, that that's on my, I'm looking at, I have like a Freedom Dreams of 2021 poster that I made. Um, and yeah, it's like also one of these really involves you because um, one of the brackets is like owning my pleasure. Um, and I was... Um, the pleasure flower map that you would post. Mm-hmm. I would Sounds do that with my partner one. all the yeah. time. Yeah, we, I would do that with my partner all the time. So uh, the only my pleasure bracket is really just a manifestation of that. Um, yes. And yeah, I think also just a big part of freelancing is kind of always feeling like you don't know what you're doing until you get edits back. Um, mm. And I think for me, I want to feel secure in my ability to write without that. Yeah. I want to be like, I know how to do this thing because I've done it. Um, and I trust myself. Um, and yeah, so I think that's I think that's also why I'm getting out of the hamster wheel is like, I really do need to like stand on my own two feet and trust that I can do this without the praise once every couple of weeks, without the constant feedback of like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Like I want to sit on a project for a long time and um, be proud of it regardless of like, the performance mm-hmm. knowing what I'm doing yeah. all the time. Yeah, that's so important. Um, I think, well, this makes me ask, I'm like, well, now I need to know the rest of the placements because I, I resonate with that piece. I'm like, I 
cannot feel dependent on validation mm-hmm. in very like frequent um, and short periods because then it will drive me crazy. I'm like, no, 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 my Gemini shit. And I'm like, nah, I like need to feel like I have time and space and also mm-hmm. to like, make mistakes or, you know, take more time to figure it out. But it's also- Wait, what is your, Oh, no, I was gonna ask, what is your reasoning for that? Like, what's the core of like, why you don't want the validation? Because I think mine's is a lot more judgmental. Yeah, no, I think it's really judgmental too. It's like, there's definitely like some self-deprecating shit in there. <laughs> okay. Where I'm like, you know, I rather feel, like, I rather feel like, okay, I'm going to push it out every so often. I think the podcast gives me a lot of time and space. You know, I don't feel like, mm-hmm. oh, like, I'm I'm like, okay, how, what's everyone going to think of this? I'm like, this is out here. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, always, like, deep gratitude and hope it resonates with people or hope that it's useful for folks. But, like, mm-hmm. it's not the same thing of, like, output and, like, feedback. Like, I, yeah. yeah, I think that's a better way to put it. Like, I think I can't be in a constant feedback loop. Um yeah where I'm like the centerpiece of like judgment because it's like, yeah, I can't, I think it's just like, you know, over time I'm like, I actually need to trust my intuition and my voice. And, you know, I have like the core crew, core comrades of people that mm-hmm. I deeply trust and I think their opinion and their feedback is up, of utmost importance. But I think that feels significantly different than like thousands of people online that I don't even know. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say mine is more judgmental cause I just don't, trust most people especially when it comes to writing i really be like i've seen y'all praise some stuff that was not that great that so i'm not saying i don't trust it or i don't believe it but i'm saying like i want i don't even if, if it's mentorship but like i'm looking towards like greats like tony morrison is my mm. is my go-to so like I'm not saying Toni Morrison has to tell me that I'm a great writer, but I need to meet a certain standard in my head for reflection and editing and like deep study in the work that I'm doing that the internet, I don't think will ever appreciate mm-hmm. or prioritize, um, which is fine because that's how it works. But sometimes it is hard for me to gauge like if people are just telling me I'm good at something because it's on the internet or mm-hmm. if it's because it is actually good. And sometimes, um, I actually really appreciate when people like mentors or people that are have been in the game longer will tell me like, hey, this needed more editing. Like this needed a little bit more time to sit Um, because that's like the good stuff. But when people are like, this is amazing. And I'm like, did you read it? I was like, no, but I know it's good. And I'm like, okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like the critical, honest Mm -hmm. and like rigorous feedback. Mm -hmm. That's important that we need of I that we don't have enough of I don't yeah. think like it's other people are gonna gas you and it's also it's like so tied to like social capital and yeah I think with really like visible moments in the platform it's like people are like yes it's iconic and I'm like is it <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like- a critical question um I always see pictures of like Audrey Lord um and yeah just the elders like really sitting in a room and like going line by line on stuff and I'm always like yeah, if I could get a writing camp, if I could get like that type of rigorous work with people, um, even in just like what we want for the future, I'm always like, that's the type of stuff I want to do um, mm-hmm. in regards to like how I understand the, the work going forward. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm like, I don't want that shit. Let me know. Yeah, summer camp. <laughs> yeah, like a something like a. Let's sit by a lake. Let's read some stuff. Let's like go mm -hmm. line by line on this piece and like go from there. And just like debate and support each other. Like be like, nah, that doesn't hit. Or like ask the critical questions. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's in in the work ethic. Ironically, like work ethic, especially around creativity and being a cultural worker like it's such it's such a like nuanced thing because it's mm -hmm. like on one way it's like we're overworked as fuck and we know that mm -hmm. but then i think there's not enough infrastructure of support and mentorship to your point you know i feel that constantly right like i wish i had more people that i can just be like sending like workshops to and just like get honest feedback mm -hmm. um and I think it could be really hard for you to like be the subject and also like the mirror of reflection. Cause I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, then there's times where you're like, this is terrible. Or like, oh man, like, you know, whatever, I'm a wing it. Or like, oh, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, it's just really hard to have like a sober meter of like, okay, this is this is the intention of this. I think it fulfills this. Mm -hmm. This is where it could be better. Yeah. This is who it's intended for. This is the type of space it's gonna generate. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think the the weird part about that is I get a lot of people, I don't know if you get this either, but like I get a lot of people asking me to be their mentor. Um, I'm like, fam, I need a mentor. Come on. <laughs> and people be thinking I'm joking. They're like, oh, you're being humble. I'm just like, sweetheart, nah. I, I ate one time today. No, nah, I you know. Like I ate one time today. I drank my little gallon of water <laughs> and then I maybe had like a little nap to calm down my anxiety, you know? Like, I'm not saying it to be cute. I'm saying it because like- That's just really where we Right, like you're really getting the top layer of the success. The middle, the bottom parts are really like, my partner being like, no, you have to hit send on this. Like, you gotta do it. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't wanna. Yes. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, I think for like the past really two years, I've been feeling it just like, it's been one of like my deepest asks yeah. um, to the universe that, you know, just like need a like small core of like really amazing mentors who are significantly older, who've been in the game, who like can just support me in, you know, like peeping contradictions that are just not reconcilable. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a big one, you know, because it's like, ooh, you know, what are, what am I gonna do? Or like, am I gonna say yes to this? Or like, oh, how problematic is that? Or like, oh, fuck it. Like all institutions are whack, but it's like, mm. <laughs> um, Those are those moments where you're like, I just wanna send a text to somebody be like, don't do this. And I'd be like, hurry. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I've, you know, I've, I'm slowly, I, like slowly budding relationships with some folks that are kind of like filling that role. And yeah, having people that be like, I actually don't think this is gonna be worth it long term, and it's actually gonna be really like damaging. And I'm like, word, okay, cool. It's a no for me then. Uh, <laughs> I just needed to hear that. Um, but on another note, I did say it was cancer season. Yeah. You know, I'm feeling it in in very weird ways because I'd like be suppressing my emotions. All you know, that's a separate conversation. That's more centered around trauma and healing, but. <laughs> I'm curious for you, how is the season treating you? How are you sort of orienting yourself to the waters? Yeah, I think personally, the sign I have the most beef with is cancers. It's I'm not gonna agree. Beef, I'm but like, 
people will cancel me. So I'm gonna just let you rock. <laughs> like people will hit my line. Yeah. I'm like, um, nope. But the thing is, I was realizing today also, like I have three cancers tattooed on me. So I can't even be talking mess like that. No, you um, did tweet that. I was like bored. Yeah. Cause I have Frida Kahlo, of course. Um June Jordan and then uh Lucille Clifton. Um so when I saw her birthday was yesterday, I was like not that not a cancer. <laughs> not all three. Um and then yeah, like Solange. Mm-hmm. France Fanon is a cancer. Like it's Yeah, I mean they're caring for sure. Right. It could um, be a lot, but they're caring. Yeah. Um, but I think this cancer season I have really had to let go of some relationships and really stand up for myself. Um, like currently doing that in a really uncomfortable and scary way. Um, but I'm proud of myself because I think me in 2019 probably would still just be like stewing and bitter about it. So mm-hmm. um, I really am, I think the biggest Libra thing about me is the fact that like, I really don't enjoy being disliked. If everyone could love me every day, oh, it'd make my heart happy, but that's not possible. Um, so I am really this cancer season leaning into being okay with being disliked mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, I have to be okay with the decisions I make yeah, uh, and, and the relationships I'm in. So that is what this season is bringing to me. I am keeping my head down, keeping it cute until we get to Leo season. And then yes. Then I'll we... be out in these streets throwing ass again. Um, yes. The back to being ignorant by then. <laughs> but yeah, this cancer season, I'm really like not going out as much, like mm-hmm. really trying to just save some coin and chill um, so that Leo season comes, I'll be ready. Precisely, precisely yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also, you know, when I hear you talk, I almost, I there's like almost like a tone of, um, I don't think nostalgia is the the I, the word I wouldn't use, but I feel like I'm constantly hearing you like almost talk to your younger self. Like there's yeah. constantly like this reflective piece, right? You're like, hold me. So I think I'm on that same thread. Like, you know, I mean, we've made it out of 2020 for what it's worth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With all of its implications and all of the shit we're still trying to figure out and, you know, not much better conditions than we were last year, but Mm -hmm. we made it nonetheless and we survived that, you know, what are you reflecting on? What are you marinating on um, that you would remind your younger self if you could? Yeah, I think I'm... I think I'm, I'm saying this to my younger self and also really just trying to chart the path from, from my future self um, because my future goals also do really involve like leaning into my power. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I think that's been something that I have just as a dark skinned black girl in the South been taught to actively deny, like, mm-hmm. like elementary to high school, being thrown in ISS, anytime I wore something short, like it was always a question of denying my power um so i'm hoping my my future self is really out here scaring these niggas um, period <laughs> but um yeah for my past self i am always reflecting on what does it mean to do better and hold yourself accountable um i think that was something that i struggled with within my house um as a community across the country, like really sitting with like, 
how do we hold ourselves accountable and our communities accountable and also like forgive ourselves and do better um, mm-hmm. and like what conditions are needed for that. Um, and that's hard. And I think in a world really built on state violence and punishment, it's hard to forgive yourself. It's hard to see a world where you believe in yourself to do better. Yeah. Um, and so that's been kind of my, my biggest reflection from 2020 is that piece. Um, Cause it also requires, um, I don't want to say antiquated, but yeah, like capitalism wants you to be perfect now. Mm-hmm. And actual healing requires like so much more time, mm-hmm. so much more slowness. Um, and I think when I first started sitting with those questions, I wanted to be better the next day. I wanted to be perfect the next day. Um, and I think a year out from that, I, I needed that year. Mm-hmm. I needed that year to make other mistakes um, and learn other things and like open other doors um, and get to the root of things that I didn't know were the root, probably. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Oof. Yeah. Self forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oof, it's giving, it's giving Scorpio. It's I mean, giving Scorpio. I mean, you know, the idea of of self forgiveness is is like quite revolutionary in and out of itself, right? Like it's forcing you to reckon with the idea that you're actually deserving of being faced with dignity, which mm-hmm. is completely like antithetical to all of the systems that we are swimming in. Yeah. Um, and it's like so internalized, right? Like the self-hate, the shame, the guilt, the like disgust. Um, and I think it comes up most when, yeah, you know, we make mistakes yeah. or we harm others or, you know, we're not in our fullest principled self Mm -hmm. and all of these things kind of come to surface and just like attack you from the inside out. And it's, it's very visceral. So I think to hear you say, yeah, the value and the necessity and the urgency to actually like have that, that sort of gentle hand with ourselves and with those around us and that we're in community with is like abolitionist praxis 101. And that's really beautiful. Yeah, which is wild because like abolition wasn't hard for me to get to once I just looked at where I came from. Mm. Like when I thought about my family and thought about how they navigated conflict, um, even in the very messy ways, um, it wasn't that hard to understand. I think coming through institutions and schools made it a little bit harder because I haven't taught that punishment was required. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and I think that has made that a little bit easier. Um, I think as a journalist, it gets a little squishier because media in this context, the industry itself was like built by Christy Whiteman. So yeah. I think a lot of us who are movement journalists are really actually kind of trying to build a system outside of what media looks like right now. So that's a little bit stickier, but as an organizer, um, even like talking to my mom about stuff, like she's always spouting abolitionist politics, even if she doesn't call it that or name it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I might feel, I feel my heart warm because it's like, yeah, just like recognizing all of those truths and the ways in which a lot of our folks are already embodying this like revolutionary 
um, politic, even without having like access to the language or like the spaces or the networks in a traditional form. But it's just like as a survival tactic and as a way to build community and like build bonds with one another despite ruin. Um, I know you talked a little bit about, um, you know, those of you all that are challenging and trying to like exist and build outside of like the super corporate Mm-hmm. multinational media corporation mm-hmm. company whatever it is um i'm curious as we close out is there anybody you want to shout out doesn't have to be in the south but yeah folks that we should be looking to yeah um i feel like so i i did want to give a little bit of framing so movement journalism is a legacy work mm-hmm. of Ida B. Wells, Claudia Jones, um, Marvell Cook. Uh, this is movement work or journalist work that has been happening way before it had a name. So like Ida B. Wells, as we know her to be, falls under the category of move- movement journalist. Um, she probably didn't call herself that, but uh, she was doing that work. Like she was doing data analysis before we had a frame for that, but she was digging through archives and really um, making it clear to folks like what was going on, same with Claudia Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times journalists like to act like you can't have a politic and be a journalist or we don't have a legacy of that, which is just untrue. Um, And this current iteration of us are putting a name to it and saying very clearly that like, we actually want to destroy the idea of objectivity because it only serves the status quo um, and it serves a world that wants to pretend that these systems don't exist um, and that they're not affecting people. Um, and so for us, myself, Delia Jones, uh, Sierra Hinton, uh, Co Bragg, those are all folks that work at Scalawag Magazine, um, Freedom, not Freedom Ways, but Press on Media. Um, I work with uh, James Saronsky at Just Media, which is our little collective thing. Um, And yeah, Media 2070, who basically, um, Media 2070, where Alicia Bell is at, they just put out a report on like, what does it mean for the journalism industry to pay reparations to black people? Mm. Um, Because actually like most media companies um, were started from slave money. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to like them advertising runaway slaves, um, them using the money from electric companies that were originally owned by slave owners, um, the blood money's everywhere. Uh, yeah. So that that report was really beautiful because it's hard to find the roots of those things, but for somebody to like dig through those archives and be like, the New York Times would not exist without mm-hmm. them advertising the sale of black people. Um, that means something. But then also at the same time, they also let Donald Trump put an entire ad for the Central Park Five that got them incarcerated for most of their lives. Um, so there there are visible ways that we can see that media has harmed Black communities. Um, and I think for those of us doing this work, calling ourselves movement journalists, we are critiquing the industry in the industry and also trying to teach people how to do better. Um, And I say often like journalists really move like cops often. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of journalists who I don't trust to be in communities because I don't trust their intentions. And um, 
yeah, there, there have been a few journalists that have hit my line or hit my DMs and been like, I need a contact for this. And I'm just like, no. Nah. <laughs> yeah, like I don't trust you. I don't know you. And also your coverage sucks. Like Mm-mm. you can barely get this right. And I'm not trusting you to talk to people, especially organizers. You're not ruining my reputation um, for your lack of proper coverage. Um, so yeah, I think I'm often trying to like one with all those people trying to teach journalists how to do better. And also like really understanding why organizers don't want to talk to journalists. That's why I'm like, mm-hmm. then let's, let's write your own shit. Like, let's do that instead. Because um, when organizers are like, I don't know this person, I'm not talking to them. I'm like, fair. I too would not talk to this reporter from CNN. <laughs> who's like, like, yeah, like, especially during protests, like, no. yeah, white no. reporters are, not even white reporters, black, brown, whoever, um, who work for institutions like that, legacy publications, um, are the absolute worst. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're trying to do a lot of shit, but also really trying to, at the end of the day, um, get the storytelling back to who it belongs to, and that's the yes. people experiencing um, the harms of this world and not institutions that profit off of it. Mm, period. Ah. That and that, <laughs> like we just got to the root of the whole damn thing. Right, the whole <laughs> spiel. I'd be like, do I know them? Yeah, but yeah, but that's it. But I think, um, and I also just know, having been someone who I used to dream of writing for the New York Times, I used to dream of being that journalist and like being in the culture section and doing all that. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to sacrifice a lot of my politics to be in those spaces. Yeah. And those are things that I think as an abolitionist, once I, you know, kind of spiritually signed on to that, I can't do that. Precisely. I just can't do it. It's cute. It's a cute byline to have. If you see me get a New York Times byline, you already the know. soul has been sold. Um, <laughs> but I'm not doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, those are just certain agreements I had to make with myself as an organizer and as abolitionist to be like, yeah, there's just certain heights I'm not going to get to anymore. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. If it means that my work is um, getting to the folks it needs to get to. Exactly. I really, I really appreciate you sharing that. Like, just keeping it mad real, because that's exactly the negotiation that's happening. It's like, yeah. I will choose, you know, success and probably more coin or to be in embodied politic and principle and value. Yeah. And to be like, you know, it's like community can check you. It's like, ah, uh, like, look at my work, look at my sort of trajectory. Um, and I think a lot of us are being forced to make those decisions more and more often, right? As like yeah. a lot of our values and politics become more and more quote unquote mainstream. Yeah. Um, and I just really appreciate you like keeping it 100. I also think the visibility thing is wild, just in the fact of like, we can't really control how visible we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about like, I, I put out some tweet about journalism um, that has a typo in it. Um, somebody posted it on Instagram and then like someone I used to work with was like, I see you. And I was like, do you? I was, I, cause in my head I was like, I didn't agree for this to get posted on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from someone I don't know. And it's like for some random social justice page run by white people. I was like, it's that thing where like the conflation of visibility is interesting because people are like, 
oh, your stuff is popping up in places that you didn't put it when it's really like, okay, I think this is also being like, as somebody who has seen the, the bad parts of the internet, um, yeah, that mining of content is fast. Mm -hmm. You can control it and you get consumed um, by folks and things and ideas that you didn't ask for. At all. You were like, I was just trying to say some shit and mind right, my I'm own just, business. Right. I'm just eating dinner and like 25 white women are following me on Instagram. And I'm like, no, it's a no, no. sir. Mm -mm. <laughs> I didn't ask for this, but, but yeah, but I think those, that, those political distinctions um, are important because then it makes it clear when those big companies, when those big things come, just be like, I don't know who y'all thought y'all were emailing that no that's sometimes i get emails and i'm like have you not even taken five seconds that's all you need five seconds like just read a caption just read the ig file like this this is easy this is rudimentary like y'all not even trying yeah. <laughs> yeah it's getting harder and harder and also like i also understand when folks can't make those political distinctions because they are trying to reach certain heights um mm -hmm. and i see that and understand that but i just know that um my path is gonna be a little bit different, a little bit not as glamorous mm -hmm. as like other folks. Um, yep, yep, yep. Agreed, that's agreed. Okay. <laughs> it's Bye. really okay as long as I post these cute pics on Instagram and make exactly. myself happy. Yeah, we'll be all right. Mm -hmm. um, Clarissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like this is really full circle. You know, we saw each other almost essentially like exactly a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I, respect your work so much I value it so much but then also just like love you as a human independent of the work that you do you know if you decide to just chill and rest and still gonna love you to it so yeah. I'm really happy that you came on and um excited for us you know just happy that we got to have this like very real conversation in the midst of cancer season yeah. you know it's what it requires what it requires <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for everything you do and just being the person that you are. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yes. <laughs>